0: To the February 2020 edition of Outbeat News in Depth, I'm Greg Morelia. Well, as many traditional neighborhoods across the country are slowly disappearing before our very eyes, San Francisco is taking steps to preserve the neighborhood in the Castro district. But the city's not alone. Some of those who have fallen in love with the Castro are stepping up and together have formalized a designated cultural district. Tonight, we'll talk with two of the board members of the newly formed LGBT Cultural District. We'll also be joined later in the show by Terry Beswick, the Executive Director of the GLBT Historical Society. Together, these committed members of our community will share their vision for a vibrant gay neighborhood, complete with a world-class museum, all to preserve the history of our community so many people across the world come to visit each year. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February 23rd, 2020. (laughs) This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 23rd, 2020. Last week, a major Christian website published a column saying that 2020 presidential contender Pete Buttigieg is, quote, deserving of death, end quote, and worships Satan because he's gay. Charisma News, which is associated with the Christian magazine Charisma, published a column by Burt Ferris entitled, Gay Activism, A Death Rattle of Our Nation. The article describes Buttigieg as a, quote, male presidential candidate who has a husband whom he publicly introduces and even kisses without shame, end quote. Ferris, who is co-founder of Holy Fires Ministries, stressed to readers that there is no gender called homosexual or transgender in the Bible. So being LGBTQ is actually a behavior that people can and should stop engaging in. He wrote, quote, churches and clergy who have swallowed the lie of homosexual behavior, being elevated to gender status or trophies of hell and Satan's prized possession, End quote. And then he called religious leaders who don't hate LGBTQ people, quote, pathetic, End quote. And a new study came out last week that says gay couples have less stress in their marriages than their heterosexual or lesbian counterparts. This according to a team of researchers who studied the issue. Women in different sex relationships reported the highest level of distress in their relationship. Straight men and women in same-sex relationships registered about equally, and male same-sex couples the least. Michael Garcia, the study's lead author, told the New York Times that while it's been long recognized that women were likely to report the most marital strain, in reality, that's only women in opposite-sex relationships. The study revealed that gay couples have an advantage when it comes to lowering stress levels. They divide household chores more equally, have more in-depth conversations about their sexual relationship, and lifelong gender roles tend to give them more emotional autonomy and independence. The study showed that gender roles play into household chores, with women expected to do the bulk of the care work around the home. Same-sex couples, however, tried to split feminine and masculine chores more equally based on individual preferences rather than relying on outdated gender roles. 74% of same-sex couples share child care duties compared to only 38% of heterosexual couples, where the woman is generally assumed to bear the responsibility for being the primary caregiver. Same-sex couples of both genders also spent more time with their children than straight couples. And last week, the San Francisco Pride Board announced that it will not ban the participation of YouTube and the Alameda County Sheriff's Office from this year's 50th anniversary Pride Celebration and Festival. While the San Francisco Pride Board did vote on the matter during a public portion of the meeting on Wednesday, it held a closed session beforehand. Executive Director Fred Lopez issued a statement afterward that said there would be no ban. Lopez said, quote, We've decided as a board there will be no ban against Google nor the Alameda County Sheriff's Office at this year's Pride celebration. Instead, we are saying yes to inclusivity. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. For more than four decades now, the safety and sense of community found in San Francisco's Castro District has drawn LGBTQ people from far and wide to live, work, and play. It was the neighborhood that grew icons like Harvey Milk, Cleve Jones, and Ken Jones, Del Martin, Phyllis Lyons, and so many more. The Castro's been ground zero for much of the LGBT civil rights movement, as well as the fight against AIDS. But like so many neighborhoods, it's fading. Our first two guests tonight came to the Castro and fell in love with the community, and now they've stepped up to preserve the neighborhood so that it will continue to be a vibrant and safe place for LGBTQ people to enjoy. Shannon Eminen and Christopher Vasquez, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here.
0: Well, great to have you and to find out all about uh, this cultural district that I've been reading about and we've been reporting about. Uh, Shannon, let's start with you. Talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this initiative.
2: Um, well, I've lived in the Castro for uh, since two thousand five. I also have spent a fair amount of time um, in nightlife. You know, going to the stud, going, um, you know, going out to clubs in, in the Castro, like mm-hmm. Q Bar. I opened a bar along with my business partner Jolene um, last year Um, and uh, I had this moment at the beginning of 2018 where I was feeling very much like we were losing spaces Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: um, there was a lot of talk about how the Castro was changing and with all the vacant storefronts um, I realized that I, I hadn't I hadn't been showing up for my neighborhood, um, so I went to a cultural district meeting, and I was really, really um, blown away by the diversity of folks who had shown up. Um, there were kids from Lyric there that said, "You know, we, we're here to advocate for space because we don't have we don't have any places to go," um, and there were also people from Open House. Um, so, sort um, LGBTQ seniors who felt the same way. And so as a business person, um, you know, my mind sort of went to, well, how can we create, uh, spaces for folks to be in? Um, and right. through that, through the cultural district meetings, um, I just realized that there was a, a real need for folks to come together and to sort of take back the neighborhood.
0: Mm-hmm. So what what bar did you open?
2: The bar is called Jolene's. It's in the Mission at 16th and Harrison.
0: Nice. And is it a gay bar? or?
2: It's a queer bar.
0: Okay, nice.
2: Yeah, so it's San Francisco's first trans and queer woman of color owned space that we are aware of.
0: Great. That sounds like a whole other show that we could talk about, which would be fascinating. Um, yeah,
2: I think, you know, we use queer because it's not a lesbian bar. Um, it's not a gay bar. Um, I'm a big proponent of mixed spaces, mm-hmm. um, spaces where everybody feels comfortable. Um, I think that's, in fact, one of the main issues with the Castro right now is that we have done a really great job of being a gay neighborhood, but we're supposed to be an LGBTQ neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of difficult to to say that when we don't have um very much rep- representation in business owners uh or events um the Castro currently gives queer women and trans folks Mondays and Tuesdays to go out so those are the nights that have parties that are specific for those demographics so that's something i think um under the cultural district we'd like to address yep
0: that's a that's more, a great point
2: this, yeah
0: yeah it, the the neighborhood is very very Gay male white, um, and I've always thought that that was that that was odd. But I get it, uh, how it evolved that way, and it is unfortunate. And you're right, there's so much more to our community um, than that narrow demographic.
2: Absolutely, especially when you think about people coming from all over the world um, to you know what's supposed to be almost like the mecca of LGBT you know Q spaces. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's, that's exactly what the cultural district, um, aims to, uh, to fix.
0: Great. Uh, and I want to come back and talk about that district for sure, but Christopher, I'd like to hear from you. What drew you to this particular initiative and work?
1: Yeah. So my story is, um, somewhat similar to, to Shannon's. Um, I've lived in San Francisco for over 11 years now. Um, I actually came to San Francisco when I was 17 years old, um, as a newly out uh, queer teen from Florida, and I spent four days just roaming around the Castro and getting to know all of its intricacies, like going to going to Lyric to the to the youth group that's that they have there. Um, I had a date with a, a guy at, at um, Cafe Floor right on Market Street, one of the great cultural spaces in the district. Um, and so when I when I moved here 11 years ago, I knew that the Castro was, or I'm sorry, I should, I should even say when I was 17, I knew the Castro was somewhere that I wanted to live and wanted to make my life. Um, so when I moved here 11 years ago, I uh, got involved in local politics. I actually interned right away with the uh, Board of Supervisors member, Bevan Dufty, who represented the Castro area, Castro Noe Valley area for eight years, and eventually became his housemate. Um, for about nine and a half years. So I really got to learn from him about the Castro, all of its politics, all of its business, all of its nightlife, um, and became very much obsessed with, with how much of a community a neighborhood can seem for some people. Um, and from there, I got very involved in nightlife myself. Um, helped out with a bunch of parties throughout the city, but specifically um, like gay parties, queer parties, in the Castro. Uh, and I've just maintained that level of involvement and with nightlife throughout the eleven years, but then I got more and more involved as the years went on with with uh, LGBTQ nonprofit work. Um, mm-hmm. and that got me deeper into the Castro scene because a lot of it um, is intricately tied to the forty-year history that the Castro has played with with the LGBTQ uh, community. Um, so I think you know the, over the last year, as this LGBTQ cultural district in the Castro has been. Uh, has been formed. Um, Shannon really got me interested. Another one of my coworkers, Elizabeth Lanyon, here at NCLR, is also on the advisory board. Uh, one of the first five that we were elected with, and they really got me involved going to meetings. And I really love the what the cultural district can bring to the neighborhood, um, and in terms of maintaining the culture that we already have. But just like Shannon mentioned. There is a lot lacking from that culture, and for me specifically, um, I grew up as a, as a gay Latino man, um, and I, I grew up in Florida where there was a heavy um, person of color population, so seeing more POC representation along with more women and, trans, and transgender individuals coming to the community and being, being able to thrive there is incredibly important to me, which is why I wanted to join the advisory board.
0: That's great. Uh, you know, you both really are inspiring because, you know, we've covered the story of sort of the migration of LGBT people out of gayborhoods and out of places like the Castro a lot. Um, and there seems to be sort of a generational split. There was a, a generation of people that I'll say my age in their 50s and older who, you know, very much made a life in the Castro and, and lived that life and are watching it sort of disappear. And so to hear... From two people, at least, um, that you're interested in preserving that and and growing it is really great. I love it.
1: Yeah, and I think for and I think playing going answering to that, I should say, um, it's very important to realize that the Castro has become such an expensive neighborhood, as, specifically to live that people didn't really want to leave the queer neighborhood or the gay neighborhood. They were forced out of it. That's and right. A lot of that is issues with gentrification, um, affordability. Uh, and the fact that only certain people made the money that could live there, and very rarely was that um, LGBTQ people, specifically of color or trans uh, transgender, uh, um, gender diversity. So I think both of us are very, very much invested in the idea of, of finding ways to get those people, if not the ability to live in the Castro again, to at least be part of the culture of the Castro through programming and uh, nightlife and nonprofit and art. All, all the other aspects of the cultural
0: district but right right so talk about what exactly a cultural district in the context of San Francisco means
2: um, yeah so in, in preparation for this I pulled up the um, this the actual technical uh, definition because you know what it comes down to is is the cultural districts are um, really like simply put a way to preserve and create the culture of of a district it's really going to come down to what the community wants or needs Um, but the technical definition is um, it is a specific area within San Francisco that embodies a unique cultural heritage because it contains a concentration of cultural and historic assets and culturally significant enterprise art services or businesses
0: so like Chinatown Japantown those, yeah. are, I would assume, are established within San Francisco as cultural districts that our listeners could identify with.
1: Yeah, I don't think actually Chinatown has a cultural district, um, but Japantown was actually the first cultural district okay. that was established. But some of, the more, some of the more prominent ones that have been established since, there's um, the um, Filipino uh, cultural district in Soma where there's also um, the Leather LGBTQ Cultural District. And we should note that the Castro LGBTQ Cultural District is actually the third um, LGBTQ-specific district in the city. Um, The first one was, of course, um, the Compton's uh, Mm -hmm. Transgender Cultural District and the Tenderloin, and then the Leather LGBT Cultural District, and now the Castro Cultural District. But since then, there's been a number of other ones. There's the Latino Cultural District, Calle 24, down on 24th Street in the Mission, uh, and a handful of others around the city. So we are actually the the newest of probably about 10 cultural districts now, I want to say. Yeah,
2: I believe Bayview. Bayview um, is one for the African-American community. Yeah, they're they're supposed to be coming online next, I believe.
0: Okay. And so these are districts that are... Formally recognized by the city of San Francisco, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So, what does that actually mean then for the Castro neighborhood? What is, What is that designation going to, to provide?
2: So basically, it creates cultural districts. Create a framework um, in which the the community and the city um, can partner. Um, you know, it's you know, we're really trying to rage against you know, the displacement and gentrification of neighborhoods. Um, you know, that's, that's the, ha- like the overarching.
1: Yeah. So I believe the concept of cultural districts was really to, to staunch the, the loss of cultural elements of certain neighborhoods um, that happen over time because of gentr- gentrification. Um, and it really, I mean, Ch- Japantown being the first one was an obvious example because of, of the the, the creation of Western Edition and the almost near destruction of all of Japantown in the 50s and 60s. There was very little left, so they wanted to maintain what culture was there. The city wanted to find a way to maintain what culture was there, uh, was still there. Um, and the same with the Latino cultural district down in, in the Mission, because as we know from, from watching the news, the gentrification through the Mission has been some of the worst. Um, but when, when the cultural districts first started up, they were a very loose idea, there wasn't any real concept behind them other than naming them and bringing recognition to a neighborhood for having cultural um, significance. But since then, um, back in 2018, Hillary Ronan, one of the board of supervisors members, um, codified exactly what a cultural district would be. And and there's a there was a proposition that was passed um, that actually brings in um, money through a hotel tax. I believe it was prop F, prop prop e, prop E, um, in 2018.
0: Right, and I read about that, and my understanding is that each of the districts gets somewhere around two hundred and forty thousand dollars, which is significant. Uh, and what's all that used for?
1: So it's really to to hire staff, and the staff are the ones that do the day to day operations of the cultural districts. Um, so you'll see, like like Compton has a very strong executive director, Ariasaid, who's who's really setting the tone for what the the programming and what elements the transgender district will develop.
0: So that's really a fantastic thing. I mean, we've seen over the years uh, certain elements of history being sort of embedded with the expansion of the sidewalks in the Castro and the history walk, uh, the replacement of the rainbow flags. But without a cultural district designation like this, that could all sort of vaporize, right? As the will of the neighborhood would go away.
2: yes. Um, one of the things that I'm in particular interested in um, trying to address is the Castro has lost a lot of its street festivals. Mm-hmm. So uh, New Year's Eve, Pink Saturday, uh, Halloween—you know—without w- those events, then there's you know less reason for folks to come in. Um, I mean, if you look at you know Dory and Folsom um, Carnival, um, you know, these are all huge parts of bringing a community together.
0: Right, like, and there's a lot of history behind those events. Um, most of yeah. it, great history.
2: Yeah. I mean, for me personally, uh, Halloween uh, 1998, when I was 18 years old, standing on the corner um, with my then z- very young girlfriend at the time. <laughs> but I was very young, I should say, and as was my girlfriend. Um, I had never I had never experienced so many queer folks um, in one place at one one time mm-hmm. and it, it ended up being the reason why I moved here.
0: Awesome. Talk about the board structure a little bit. So this is a formal designation, a formal structure within the city of San Francisco and there there is a board. And yes. That, and so how does that board get selected first and then how does it connect with other things like the local neighborhood chamber of commerce?
1: So, so, Let's just say the cultural district itself is just what's recognized by the city. And then the way the cultural districts, because we're not a legal entity unto itself. Okay. Uh, we're just kind of a recognized area. And then the city um, allows the districts to, to put together an RFP to get the money from the city. Because um, we have to officially request the money from the city and put together a proposal on how the money will be spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hire our own staff as, as need be. Um, but we have like a fiscal sponsor um, who is the LGBTQ center, um, sorry, the LGBT center, um, and uh, but but our board, it, the the development of that is left up to us. So each district has their own makeup of their board and how board members will interact. And so we're an advisory board, which means that we'll be advising whomever comes on, whomever we end up hiring as as staff for the district. Um, and so that will really be our goal as the board. Um, but, but our relationship to, to like other groups in the community is that we're, we're just one more type of, of kind of advising situation. We have less of a formal structure than like, I want to say like Castro merchants because they actually are a representation of of businesses and are their own nonprofit um, we won't have that formal of a structure.
0: Okay. I'm assuming Sorry, though that the Castro merchants are supportive of, of this. Yeah, oh, very much so. yes. I'm
2: actually a board member of the Castro merchants as well. Um, and I, it was reaching out to the current president, um, uh, Masood Samari, probably about eight months ago, um, to sort of lay the groundwork of, of us collaborating, um, Again, business—you know, for me, I I think of businesses, uh, you know, brick and mortars, as being tangible pieces of the cultural component of of a neighborhood. Um, And Masood is great. We—we he's very excited to to partner and to have additional support um, in a neighborhood that has been experiencing some challenges with uh, a high amount of store vacancies. But yeah, I think one of the great things about the one of the interesting opportunities of the cultural district is to be a bridge between you know the community benefit district the merchants uh, the district supervisor the office of economic workforce development the nonprofits
1: that are in the in the neighborhood like lyric um, the center the game and the forest open house
0: right there's a lot of them there's a right. lot uh, right, and, and all the more reason to to make sure that that physical environment is preserved
1: exactly correct so, going back go ahead. Going back to part of the question that you asked. Um, you asked how the, the board is selected. Um, it was really left up to, to we had so before the cultural district was officially established by the city, we had a working group that was putting together the kind of how it would how it would look, what the boundaries would be. It was a very it was less formal than the advisory committee, but it was all working people who were working very hard to set up the parameters of it to get it passed by the Board of Supervisors um and so when we were having the first elections it was really up to that group to develop how the elections would work and it was decided that we would do the elections for the board in three cycles and that was done in a very specific way because we wanted to get um people in um or we wanted to see who the first five people would be and then from there we would be able to recalibrate who what groups and what neighborhoods i'm sorry i should say what community groups or um, ethnicities, anything like that, we needed to reach out to if we were lacking in representation um, after each vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, other than that, we we decided that we wanted to cap it at fifteen, so it wouldn't get too large. But we would each step of the way evaluate it and see if there was what way we could do better to make sure that a board was fully representative the entire LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and the other aspect of it is that we um, left the voting open for anybody it does, we did not have any ge- geographical or age or any requirements for being able to vote because we really all felt that the, the Castro and especially the Castro that we want it to be should be somewhere that everybody feels comfortable going um, and it touches on every LGBTQ person's life that visits there so anybody who wanted to be a part of that voting process should be a part of it
0: so you say you have 15 seats. Are they all filled?
1: No. So we've actually only had one election so far. Oh. Of Shannon and I were the first five members. Okay. Um, along with Elizabeth Lanyon, who I mentioned before, uh, Sparks and uh, Sean Haynes. Um, and then we actually have another election set in February, February 22nd, um, which will be at the, um, the Gay Men's Chorus uh, building on Valencia Street. hmm That will be the second of three elections. And then after that, we'll once again go back and see if there are more people we should be reaching out to to get either more people of color or more trans candidates to run every time we're looking at it to see whom we can outreach more to.
0: Great. And so even with the five of you, you've got some vision for what you want to do in terms of first steps. And I've seen quite a bit of media. I mean, you've had some pretty good social media coverage and you've been very, very visible already so far. Um, have you hired any staff yet or is it just the five of you that are doing all the work?
2: Yeah, we, um, we won't be able to really get going until the board is fully sat. We also have, um, a pretty hefty document that we have to submit. Um, it's called an RFP, a request for proposal, um, to the city before we can access funding. And once we access funding, we'll hire, um, an executive director or, um, you know the the leather district calls it a district manager, so we haven't really settled on the on the title yet. Um, and then one of our ma- our first main um, task is going to be to hire um, an outside organization to complete um, a needs assessment. Mm-hmm. So once that has been submitted, we'll have several town halls to get additional feedback from the community, and from there we'll be able to start implementing. Um, programming based on uh the response from the from the community
0: sounds like a great way to go and boy do you have some big issues to weigh in on right everything sure everything from you know remodeling harvey milk plaza to the horrific homeless problem yeah just to name yeah. a couple
1: absolutely and and i know for a lot of us some of the biggest work that we want to do is working with the supervisor's office to figure out how to how to end this rash of of uh, retail vacancies that has made the neighborhood much less inviting. Exactly. Um, finding ways to support LGBTQ businesses that have disappeared over the past few years. Um, like currently, I, I'm sure if you live in an the, the area, you know that Cafe Floor is currently sitting mostly closed, um, only open for private events. And, and that's something that we really want to find a solution
0: to. Right, right. No, I know. It's Just all the restaurants that have been there for a long, long time seem like they're they're disappearing, um, along with a lot of small businesses, and that's always a shame to see. So I'm curious. You both seem to have a very, very good vision of what you want uh, to see in the Castro. If you look out five years from now, give me a description of how this historical district will manifest itself and how the neighborhood will look. Well, well,
1: let's preface it just by saying, like like obviously we have our own visions like personal visions and we've had some talks amongst the first 5 members Sure, but really we won't we won't set a strategic vision for the cultural district until all 15 board or up to 15 a- board Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I'm just I'm looking for your own individual perspectives if Oh, absolutely. as you yeah. as you daydream about what that neighborhood's going to look like in 5 years and the role of the, the cultural district tell me what you see.
1: I, well, I'll go back to when I was 17 like I I came to San Francisco, like I said, when I was first coming out, and to me, walking down the street for the first time seeing two men holding hands openly and without fear of retribution was this, like, extremely bright guiding light for me and showing me that there is a future where LGBTQ people are accepted and not, you know, discriminated against. And so my future for the cultural district would really be that. But with a with a even greater concept of what acceptance means, and that includes seeing people of color flourish in a neighborhood that has had historic problems with with that. Like we can see now, there are no beer bars in the Castro that specifically cater to people of color anymore. Um, but also to see you know the the a lot more inclusivity and acceptance of our trans brothers and sisters who have historically had problems in the Castro being able to. Get into venues or be in leadership roles with nonprofits and and, uh, and events that are held there. So that for me would be the, the greatest of our concept. But then also just finding ways to to make the neighborhood more vibrant and and accepting, um, be it through art or through cultural events like Shannon talked about. Um, those would really be my first big um,
2: like great ideas for the next five years. Mm-hmm.
0: Nice. Shannon, how about you? Would you close your eyes and look out? What do you want to see?
2: Um, I see um, a corridor that has no vacancies. Uh, I see lots of queer people from all over the world um, shopping, dining, going to cultural events, um, going to the GLBT Museum, going, which will have a much larger home. Um, the Castro Theater will have lines down the block the space will be beautiful Um, more greenery more culture happening just on the street street performances um, and a lot more art
0: sounds good to me so where can people go to learn more about this new cultural district
2: Um, you can go to castrolgbtq.org We also have an Instagram and Facebook.
0: Great. So all over social media, you can follow all of the developments uh, as this new effort unfolds. And if you miss those websites, we'll put them on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page, and we'll have it all there for you. Well, Shannon and Christopher, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for really stepping up. And again, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, really inspiring um, sort of a new movement to preserve the Castro. Well,
2: thank you. We're, yeah, uh, we're excited well, about it.
1: Yeah, there's no reason to thank us, because we, we're not going to be doing it on our own. Like, we may be elected to be a part of the advisory board, but we're really going to be turning to the community to help set those ideas and really turn them into action. So it's people like you that are interested in reporting about this and getting the word out about exactly what the, the cultural district will do, which is which is even more important than us being on the advisory board, I think.
0: Great. Well, we will look forward to checking in with you uh, as this develops and, more importantly, enjoying the great neighborhood you're all going to create. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, Terry Beswick has also been heavily involved in preserving the history and legacy of the Castro and was one of the first and original founders of the LGBT Cultural District. You most recently know Terry as being the Executive Director of the GLBT Historical Society. Terry, it's good to have you back with us.
3: Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here.
0: I was just thinking it's been four years. It seems like just a couple of days ago we were talking uh, when you were first hired as the executive director, but it, it really, the time's flown by.
3: Yes, it has. Um, you know, it's been a, a long and eventful four years in many ways, and in other ways, it's gone by very fast. And so uh, I feel like I was a young man when I started the job. And <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm a little older.
0: <laughs> I guess that's what history does to us, right? It ages us. Uh, so yeah. catch us catch us up a bit. Talk about some of the highlights for you uh, over the last four years with the GLBT Historical Society.
3: Thanks, Greg. Yeah, sure. It's been uh, really amazing, actually. Um, you know, one of the first things we did when I started the job is we we moved uh, our headquarters and our archives. You know, which is one of the largest collections of LGBTQ history. Um, historical materials in the world, and we moved it uh, to a larger, um, more spacious, clean, well-lit location on Market Street in San Francisco. And uh, so we've been there for almost four years now, yeah. And other than that, you know, we've also been growing. I think when we started, I mean, if staff size is a a measure of growth, you know, we've grown from two-and-a-half staff, people, and I was the half, um, up to 10 going on 11 now, oh, wow. and, uh, and our budget is just about tripled, so, um, so we're really gearing up, and that's kind of been parallel with our growing programs in both the archives and the museum, but also our campaign to build a much larger museum, uh, which would be really the first full-scale museum of LGBTQ history. Um, in the United States, so, uh, so we're, we're really doing capacity building and planning and gearing up for hopefully a capital campaign to launch this year.
0: That's exciting. That is really exciting. And so since you've moved in, talk about some of the new groups uh, that have been using the archives.
3: You know, one of the interesting uh, things is the groups that have uh, really been accessing the archives in the last couple of years have been other museums. Oh, um, really? around the world. And so, for example, the um, uh, 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 Oakland Museum, uh, California Museum in Oakland, um, last year they had a big exhibit on uh, queer California, and uh, they borrowed, I think it was about a third of this very large exhibit were, were materials borrowed from our archives. And so, you know, things like, you know, Sylvester, you know, the mm-hmm. um, uh, Disco Queens, you um, um, costumes, and uh, Jose Saria, who was the first person to run for public office anywhere in the world in 1961, a lot of his materials. Um, and uh, also in Berlin recently, there, were, uh, there was an exhibit that included some of our materials, and really all around the world, the museum uh, in Washington, D.C., um, and so on and so forth. Uh, actually, the uh, San Francisco International Airport um, right. As a number of our materials right now, as part of their Harvey Milk exhibit yeah. in the new Harvey Milk uh, International Terminal, and they're planning a new exhibit, which will be a, actually a permanent exhibit that includes many of our uh, our uh, Harvey Milk collections. And so, uh, so you know, it's it's other museums that are really like tapping, and actually, we have a full time staff person now that his sole responsibility is to um, you know package artifacts and art to send across the world and then to make sure that we get it back. So
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that is having a, an enormous reach too. And part of the reason for that is because other museums historically have not always included LGBT um, uh, historical artifacts or stories as part of their exhibitions. And that's beginning to change. And I think that's a very good sign.
0: That's terrific. You know, you mentioned the airport. I've had at least two friends who've flown into – SFO uh, One straight who was really surprised to see that but was impressed by the Quality and the depth of that exhibit. So a lot of people are seeing it
3: Yeah, yeah, they definitely they definitely are, and they stop and uh, take a look. It's really quite quite powerful and um, you know and it, it manages to tell you know, the the story of Harvey Milk and his tenure as supervisor, and of course the story of his assassination along with Mayor Moscone, but also the multifaceted areas of his life and and, uh, and his journey. So, uh, of course, he's an iconic hero to us um, in the LGBTQ community, but also um, has become quite famous around the world. Um, uh, and so it's, it's great to see people coming from all over the world that, uh, one of the first things that they see is this Harvey Milk exhibit at the airport.
0: Sure is. Well, I can tell you as a teacher, I so appreciate having the museum piece of the organization available to my students. I bring, I don't know, half a dozen classes down there a year. You mentioned 26,000 people are visiting the museum. That's impressive. (laughs)
3: Yeah, it actually is. The the total square footage uh, of the museum is only 1,600 square feet. And and so for us to reach that level of uh, visitors uh, in the industry, uh, that's the way they measure it, is how many visitors per square foot. And so we're really out of the ballpark, actually, especially for a history museum. Um, But, you know, people make it a destination um, uh, to come to the Castro and the museum is, uh, right in the middle of the Castro and it's kind of a, a, a way to really contextualize the neighborhood and the story of, uh, you know, the gay rights and gay liberation. So, um, so we, we managed to tell, um, the story, uh, with some complexity there, it really goes back over a hundred years and, and people come back also for our temporary exhibits that we have there.
0: Right. And you do change them regularly and they're just, they're really impressive. And I've also noticed just a, a step up in programming too. You've had, it seems more speakers and more special events in the space.
3: Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, the thing about our community is, that we're so diverse, you know, because, you know, LGBT people come from every sector of, you know, our economy and every, every race and nationality, not to mention gender and sexuality. And so, and everybody that comes to the museum, they really want to see themselves represented. And we, with the space that we have, we were not always able to accomplish that with exhibitions. And so we supplement that. With programming, um, you know, last night, for example, I was at the museum and we were showing uh, a documentary about uh, the Two Spirit Powwow, um, mm. and uh, it was a very well-attended event. Um, you know, we we're only able to seat about fifty people, so it was just about sold out, and and uh, and it was really wonderful. Uh, but you know, uh, and last year we had an exhibit about Two Spirits as a temporary exhibit. Um, uh, you know, the LGBT uh, uh, population of of the American Indian community, and uh, but once it's gone, it's gone, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, so we were able to supplement that kind of exhibition with programming like that, and in that way, we uh, were able to sort of meet the demand that's uh, that's out there across the community.
0: It's terrific. Well, on this show, of course, you know, we're talking about the uh, fairly newly formed LGBT cultural district. And really the, the greater conversation around the disappearance of gayborhoods um, and, and how cities like San Francisco and how local neighborhoods are trying to preserve the identity of a neighborhood as the gay people move out more into, quote-unquote, mainstream America. Uh, talk about your experience. What have you seen? You've been in, in the city for a while, and what's it feel like to see the neighborhood disappearing? Well...
3: Um you know, I, I I've lived in San Francisco off and on for um, all my adult life and, and uh which is about forty years and um, and so the changes are gradual and there's somebody that lives right in the middle of the Castro you know, it's, it's kind of hard to track those sort of changes as being significant. I actually walk around the street and I I, I say hello to, you know, every other person, it seems like, and, and 90% of them are LGBT. So, um, uh, so I, I don't see that the neighborhood itself is disappearing but i will say it is part of a trend you know we've lost several lgbt neighborhoods across the city over the last uh, couple of decades that are just gone or disappearing and the castro is much less gay than it used to be so uh, a lot of the times uh, you know people come to the castro um but don't necessarily live here. Who were LGBT? Right. So, so, um, so it's kind of become uh, you know a place to go and play, um, you know, to go to you know things like you know programs at the museum or whatever. But um, this is um, a, a trend that's across the world in terms of the uh, the changing demographics, and you know, there's a number of speculations and theories around why that is. Uh, you know, I think the most common explanation is that um you know it's it's much more expensive to live here um right and so it really doesn't so it affects young people it affects people oftentimes queer people are disenfranchised from their 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 families or their communities across the country and in the past they have come to san francisco as a place of refuge um even if they experience that now and maybe that's less uh, less common now but even if they experience it now they uh may not have the option to come here. You know, when I came here, it was like, you know, you could get an apartment a flat for a few hundred dollars. And now it's like a few thousand dollars for a studio, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, so, so people end up sharing, you know, I have a few roommates here actually. (laughs) We're thinking about another one, but, uh, um, it's so you know it's um, it, it's it's harder it's harder to um, to find that safe place and the other thing is, the other theory is that you know we don't need our safe spaces as much as we right. used to, you know, right. and you can see uh, in small communities around the country you know they've had pride festivals for years, um, you know uh, just to track just you know and there's different measures of that but just to track that with uh, a political Power. There's many more openly LGBT people in elected office across the country. Now we have a serious candidate for president who's openly gay. Um, and so, you know, so the question is, you know, do we need to uh, wall ourselves off and and declare this as, uh, you know, gay only territory? And, you know, the, the you know, there There is still a need for safe places. There's still a need for people to socialize, I would say, and to um, uh, you know share our stories. Um, and so uh, and also, you know, as the historical society, our, our role is to collect and preserve and share our stories, our histories. but um, but we also feel like it's important to preserve the living culture. Um, and uh, so we we were involved in forming uh, the, uh, Castro LGBTQ cultural district, uh, last year, I actually called the first public meeting and spent about a year facilitating all the community meetings leading up to the passage of the legislation by the board of supervisors, uh, unanimously. And, uh, when it was signed by mayor breed, I kind of withdrew and, um, I'm, uh, um, you know, focusing on my museum project, um, but uh, you know, I'm excited about it because it gives it provides another place for people to participate in identifying what's important about our community and our culture and finding ways to uh, leverage public funds uh, to support those uh, priorities. Yeah
0: Well, and it really does seem like the city as well as the local neighborhood and the merchants are really behind this idea of preserving the Castro as uh, an LGBT neighborhood and, and, and preserving that whole identity. I mean, uh, when the city bumped out the sidewalks a few years ago, there, yeah. the, the, the history walk was created. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of opportunity to learn about people uh, who are icons in our history. So how do you see that and efforts like that connecting with your vision for the museum?
3: Well, uh, you know, the uh, museums are – you know, they're changing the whole uh, the whole concept of a museum is much different than it used to be. Um, it used to be, you know, a, a, a walled off place where you just go in and look at the dusty exhibits, and 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 now they're much more open. They're sort of involved parts of the community. Um, and you know, with our museum, we have a community curation program where members of the community can come in and stage exhibits and put on programs. Um, and then we also get out in the community, um, and do events in other places and get involved in things like the cultural districts. And so, um, it it's all, you know, part of an effort working together. Um, you know, the merchants are interested in part, I think, um, in maintaining the queer identity of the castor because it's a draw, you know, whether people are queer or not, you know, they, they want to come and, um, sort of experience that thing that is a part of, uh, the fabric of San Francisco, um, and if you don't come to the Castro, then you know—have you really visited San Francisco? I don't know. I mean, it's it, it, to me, it's a part of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the museum, you know, uh, sort of is is part of part of all of that. Uh, but it's also a place for us to uh, celebrate and uh, experience all the different facets of our community and our history. So. Um, yeah, so I'm excited about our progress on that.
0: Well, I like what you said about you know a museum not needing to be walled in. Uh, when I bring students there, it, I bring them there for a reason. I mean, you could talk about the events in a classroom, but when you're actually there to see it and to to feel it, you know, as you walk mm-hmm. through, um, I think there's just a great opportunity to to take that museum experience and really connect it where people can go and walk around and actually see the places and the spots. Uh, in the environment where all of this history was created. Uh,
3: the- yeah, well, I you know, I have a lot of dreams for our new museum and I'm, I'm hoping that we make some traction on that this next year where it will be large enough that we can do some really fun and experimental things. But uh, one of my... Uh, um, hopes is that we have some kind of like a virtual map, you know, where people can sort of see um, uh, uh, on a map, whether it's on a computer or on a wall projection, um, all the different places and historical events that have occurred in those places around the city and on a pinpoint map and and, and, and be able to interact with that, just like see um, video and pictures and um, uh, stories uh, that help to uh, explain sort of the the chronology of the changing LGBT life of San Francisco over the last, you know, uh, 150 years and so. Um, So, uh, you know, so we have some great ideas about the things that we can accomplish with more resources and more space. Um, And uh, so we're exploring uh, different sites right now, and uh, and I think – um, uh, uh, it's going to be an amazing amazing opportunity for us to really carve out a niche for uh, queer history in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking about the changing technologies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know Cleve Jones put together a walking audio tour that was sort of GPS based and you could plug in and hear him tell you about all these different uh, spaces without him actually having to physically take you to them. And I just have this vision of you know, going to the museum as a, as a tourist um, like you would now. I mean, you can put on some headphones and hear some audio clips inside the existing space. But wouldn't uh-huh. it be cool to be able to take that, go through the museum, see that map that you were talking about, and then go out into the actual neighborhood itself and go to see where Harvey's camera shop was and where the elephant walk was and you know, all of those, all of those space, spaces having the museum guide you on the way.
3: Exactly. Greg, we're going to have to get you on our planning committee. That's um, uh, uh, exactly the kind of thing that we need.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love it, of course. And again, being a teacher in, in LGBT studies, those kinds of things just really, really excite me for students because I've seen how being there for them really makes that history come alive.
3: Yeah, I think um, you know your students and uh, other students in San Francisco are really lucky to have uh, those kinds of opportunities. A lot of a lot of kids, you know, in places like Modesto or you know Thousand Oaks or whatever across California, they don't have those opportunities, you know. Right. And uh, yeah, that's one of the projects we're really focusing on this year is how we can try to uh, get our stories out into the classrooms across the state uh, this year.
0: So cool. So let's go back and talk about your vision for this new museum space. I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, commercial property really anywhere in the city, but especially in the Castro is so expensive. Mm-hmm. But, but putting, putting the fundraising part aside for a second, you know, as you mm-hmm. close your eyes, describe for me what this permanent larger museum space is going to be like and where do you see it being located? <sighs>
3: yeah um so we completed a set of feasibility studies that really explored different sizes and, and configurations for a new museum and research center and uh, our as part of that process which really engaged all the different constituent groups, we we really identified that we would like to have a permanent location first of all because you know the, the only real defense against uh, gentrification in San Francisco is to really own the property. Um, and we'd like it to uh, combine both our archives and our museum into one place, where there can be an interaction between uh, the exhibits and the archives. It's much more dynamic, and creates opportunities for learning. So, uh, and and another thing that we did identify is ideally we would like to be in the Castro neighborhood. Um, in part because um, uh, there is uh, you know a built-in audience here um, uh, tourists uh, constitute about seventy percent of the visitors uh, mm-hmm. to our current museum people from outside uh, the bay area and uh, so, uh, so you know and we recognize you know that that's that's a big obstacle to place to to, to try to uh, identify a space that's large enough um, we do want to have at least uh, 20,000 square feet, ultimately, in order to be able to achieve those objectives. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, currently we're, you know, um, at about 10% of that. So uh, so that's a significant increase in size for us. Um, and there is very few existing uh, buildings uh, that uh, are available in the Castro uh, neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods even that are large enough Uh, to allow for that. So ultimately, I do think that we're going to have to build... Um, and yet, you know, we did establish a transitional period. So if we get into a, a building that's larger than the one that we have now and we're able to own it and then later, um, uh, you know, do, uh, the work that's design work that's necessary to build something larger. Um, that would be, um, one interim step that would allow us to get where we want to go. So, so that's part of the planning process that we're in right now. We are looking at different, um, Sites uh, currently in uh, the Castro area and uh, are in preliminary uh, discussions with um, a, on a couple of them uh, that are very promising. So, how is that possible? I think it's um, going to require significant support um, from the city as well as the private sector. Um, and uh, we're seeing some really promising developments uh, that that kind of support is going to be available to us. Um, and then, um, you know, you, you mentioned the fundraising; that is going to be key uh, because, you know, currently our budget is 1.5 million, and to um, to establish and to maintain a museum that's much larger, a full scale museum like that, it will require us to um, uh, significantly increase that budget. So. Um, So – but to get it open, um, it's going to require significant public support and then um, we're hoping a a landlord uh, that will work with us in uh, leasing or doing a lease-to-buy situation that would be below the market rate because uh, I don't think any nonprofit can really afford um, the full market rate on a commercial corridor right now. uh, on the level that, uh, we're talking about, uh, for an arts and culture organization, certainly. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of the big picture, um, into the weeds a little bit for, you know, our planning process, but, um, we're very focused and, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you set a goal, um, as we set this goal a few years ago and we have no idea how we're going to get from A to Z, but we just do the next step and hopefully, uh, keep, Moving the ball forward.
0: Well, you've got a great plan and uh, a great vision for what it's going to be. And I think, you know, some infrastructure now with the formation of an LGBT cultural district in place. It sounds like the city's behind you. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners where they can go to connect with the GOBT Historical Society and start supporting this effort.
3: Thanks, Greg. Yeah, well, we're uh, and and we do have the mayor's support. I'm really encouraged by that. She came to our gala and said that she wants to cut the ribbon while she's in office. So, <laughs> so I think that's very helpful. Um, but we really need um, every everyone's support, um, whether it's to join us as a member or, you know, to make a small donation or just visit the museum. And the best place to find out about us and how to become a member is on our website, uh, glbthistory.org. Um, and we're all over social media as well. Uh, Facebook, we have a very active uh, Facebook group or a page. And, uh, yeah, so um, if people um, want to drop by our museum, we're down on uh, 18th and Castro Street uh, at 412718th Street and, you know, it's a former laundromat, so it's fairly nondescript, you know, storefront, um, easy to miss, but, um, you know, also uh, easy to find if you're looking for it. So, yeah, um, best way is to check out our website.
0: Yeah, I think it's a beautiful space, and it, you would have a hard time walking past it and not at least looking at the videos and being drawn in. So uh, it is a yeah. great opportunity. And if you miss those websites, we'll have them on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with Terry Beswick, who's the Executive Director of the GOBT Historical Society. Terry, great to get caught up with you.
3: Greg, thanks so much. You're awesome.
0: And that wraps up our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Alpeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia, exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long.
4: I'd love to change the world But I don't know broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you So we gon' walk it out Ooh mountains We to walk it out and move